Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. Hello and welcome back to another week of Making Media. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Ardy Ignatius, the editor-in-chief of the Harvard Business Review. HBR is the crown jewel in Harvard's media arm, which is called Harvard Business Publishing. This media business has intrigued us at Colossus for quite some time. It's over 100 years old and has created some of the best business content ever produced. But few people talk about it as a media force. Last year, it made $302 million in revenue. It had 11 million monthly visitors to its website, and it's followed by tens of millions of people on social media. There's no question it deserves paying closer attention to. That's exactly what Matt and I did in November last year when we did a business breakdown episode on how Harvard Business Publishing works. And ever since that conversation, I've wanted to talk to Ardy about the unique model HBR employs and exactly how it operates. And he's had a fascinating career in media. Before he joined HBR in 2008, he was second in command at Time magazine. And early in his career, he was the Wall Street Journal's bureau chief in both Beijing and Moscow. So we start with some of those personal experiences before talking in detail about Harvard Business Review. And as always, we finish with our debrief. So please enjoy this conversation with Ardy Ignatius. Ardy, I'm thrilled to speak with you and learn more about the Harvard Business Review. But before we get to the business, you've been a media your whole career. You've been a journalist at some of the most interesting moments in history. You're at Tiananmen Square in Beijing. What stands out to you as kind of a defining point or one of your most memorable experiences in your career in media? So I was the Wall Street Journal's bureau chief in Beijing from 1987 to 1990. And that was the most exhilarating moment of my career and then sort of the worst moment of my career. And exhilarating, 1988 in China was kind of the most amazing experience for anybody involved in the intellectual world, Chinese and foreign alike. It was this real opening up in a sense there were experiments in the political sphere, in the economic sphere. And there really was a sense that China could go in any one of a number of directions. So it was thrilling. We made more friends in that year, lifelong friends than any other. And in some ways, that pushing of the envelope led to the energy and eventually the unrest that was the Tiananmen crackdown and massacre in 1989, which then was the darkest period that I've lived through. I guess the lesson is it was in the balance. The direction that China ended up in is that sort of deal that Deng Xiaoping brokered, which is you can get rich, you keep your mouth shut. There could have been a more, even if it was slightly more pluralistic, a deeper development of civil society that wasn't absolutely under the control of the Communist Party. It was in the balance and it turned out the way it did. But that was certainly the most interesting and in many ways, the most rewarding part of my career. And what was it like to report on that? Because I imagine it was difficult to remain objective and there was just a lot of emotion everywhere. And as you say, there's two very distinct moods before and after, I guess, and maybe even during. It is very hard for journalists to cover movements like this because you can identify one side as the good guys. The whole world was watching the students' protests in 1989 and sort of fell in love with them and just thought, wow, they're speaking for the ideals. And you see this with some of the other revolutions, the color revolutions more recently, the women protesting in Iran more recently. And you think, wow, I'm really rooting for them. 
that's a natural human thing. It's tricky as a journalist to fall into that. And it can sap your good judgment sometimes because you can imagine that a popular protest will succeed more than it's likely to because you get caught up in the emotion of that. I mean, that's a lesson too for journalists too. Yes, you're human. There's no such thing as pure objectivity, but you can't get so involved in the story that you're hyper-partisan or really engaged in trying to help one side prevail. And you've been a leader for HBR for over a decade now, and you were high up in a time as well. What do you think are the most important characteristics for media leaders today? I guess constant adaptability. I mean, that's true with any leader anywhere. You think of something like generative AI. This is sort of all anyone can talk about in our industry and anywhere else. On the one hand, okay, what an interesting play toy. On the other, what an interesting tool. Then a third aspect, is this going to wipe us out? I mean, the answer is, I hope not. But you could imagine a scenario where, I don't know, advertising-supported media is harder to maintain because people have this incredible generative AI tool at their fingertips for free or ad support or whatever the models end up being. It just makes you think, all right, so what is it we do that is different from that? And is it higher touch? Is it more personality? I guess it's a willingness to keep reinventing what you do. On the subject of AI, I mean, you've seen a number of technological shifts through your career. How does this feel? I guess it might be early, but does it feel similar to maybe the internet or anything else from your perspective in media? I think it's up there. I mean, the internet forced us to rethink a print-based business model. I guess as things like Google got bigger and began to curate and amalgamate content, it forced more strategic shifts. So we had to figure out, all right, what do we do that people can't just get from grazing the news sites? This one, I don't know. This one might be more fundamental because it's early days. It's kind of weeks or months. We went from, oh yeah, someday AI to, oh wow, I feel how this is going to change my life. And I have never had more conversations with potential partners, people who are offering opportunities, people who are providing ideas that give us a good defense against this. Just never been bombarded by so many people with so many ideas. And we don't even know what the applications are. So I think this really, truly could change how we consume content, how we produce content. We're drawing up guidelines for what's permissible in terms of can our editors use this stuff? And if so, how? And do we need to tell readers that they are contributors? We could tell them you're not allowed to use, but they will. So that's not realistic. So it is a dramatically changing world. And we're only starting to realize in what way. Particularly on that point, we'll get into how you produce the content on your site. But for third-party contributors, where are you leaning on that balance of you can use it, but tell us whether you used it or don't? Any of that kind of thing is interesting to me. So other media outlets have published some things. You've probably seen them. I think Wired has one. The Wall Street Journal, Dow Jones have one that I've seen as well. And probably everybody's starting to put together one. We are putting together ours. Our starting point is that we understand we cannot prevent people. It would be unrealistic to say, do not use it. The fundamental requirement that we have asked our authors is that the ideas that they present need to be original, oftentimes based on the author's original research. When it's not, they need to cite that. So I would imagine what we end up requiring with generative AI, chat GPT and all that would be, you have to tell us how you've used it. Readers need to know that. There are a lot of things that we don't know yet. I mean, there is some backlash and we're looking into this, just saying, what gives chat GPT the right to scrape up everything Harvard Business Review has ever published and allow that to be part of how it trains the bot and what the bot spits out. There are IP questions that are unresolved. There are a lot of questions that are unresolved. So my guess is our policy may evolve as we hit new stages. It's interesting to me that some of the later generations of this are trying to deal with the craziness, the hallucinations that these things can create, which are really entertaining, but also not helpful. Let's say it's linked to our brand or something. If the bot spits out, well, Harvard Prison Review says, and then it says something ludicrous, that's a problem for the bot and for us. But also to source more. Google's new version, I'm still on the waiting list for that. But they say it is more cautious. It's meant to hallucinate less. Sounds like it's more friendly to original media creators like us. I think it will evolve. I think just for now, we're asking for transparency. We're asking our authors, Stephen, off the record, how do you use it now? I mean, we just want to see to what extent it is a tool already for 
the people who contribute to us. Well, it's really interesting. And it's evolving, as you say, so quickly. I guess your business has been around 100 years. Congratulations. <laughs> so if any business is probably well-placed to weather this particular change, then yours is probably right out there. How do you attribute HBR's success? It's very rare for a business like yours to be around for such a long period of time. Is there anything sort of fundamental to the business, either the model or the values that you hold that you think has kind of allowed it to be around for so long? We have outlasted most of the companies that we write about. That is true. Although, you know, Time Magazine, the other publication that worked for a long time is celebrating its 100th as well. So both of those publications, they respect the brand. I think you need to straddle that line where you're innovating and surprising people, but still respecting what got you there, what it is that people view as special and not reinvent yourself to the point where you are unrecognizable, not change your model to the extent where you've bent over so much for advertisers that suddenly there's no there there when the advertising money dries up. I don't know. I mean, look, we're this weird publication. There aren't really any direct competitors who have our size and reach. In some ways, I wish there were. When I was at Time, we had Newsweek. So we had someone to hate and someone who would Gives you a focus. Yeah, it would give us focus and drive us to be better and to feel bad when they got us. You know, it's all sort of good, healthy, competitive stuff. So we fall back on that old boring line, like our competitors are everybody because we're competing for mindshare. And that's true. But we've been blessed to have a unique niche. It doesn't guarantee success at all. You have to try really hard to keep being relevant. It's really easy for people to not subscribe to HVR. So we have to continually provide some value where people are comfortable subscribing, renewing, whatever it is. I think we have certain advantages in our business model as well that have helped us. You guys talked about it when you did a podcast about our business a while ago. And the affiliation with Harvard and Harvard Business School, even though we're an independent company, that affiliation helps us in brand terms and in terms of our relationship with the school and school authors. What would you pull out of those advantages that you mentioned in the business model? Which ones would you surface as being some of the most important? There was a time when we remunerated authors with a, almost an honorarium. And we realized that that wasn't what was important to people, that being published in HBR gave authors a calling card, gave them something that would help their consulting business if they were consultants or their speaker fees if they wanted to speak or just their authority because the kind of imprimatur of Harvard Business Review and their ideas would help them. So that remuneration wasn't top of mind for people. Now, we do remunerate. If a journalist, if a writer does something, if we commission certain types of pieces, of course we pay. But for a lot of people, being published is more important than whatever honoraria we would come up with. So that has enabled us not to, in some cases, not to pay for content. And that's an arrangement that seems to be okay with people. I mean, we are affiliated with the university, so we have tax-free status for part of the business. I mean, our international business is fully taxed, our advertising business is fully taxed, but there are aspects of the business that are not. So that's an advantage. It just comes with, there's nothing sneaky about it. It just comes with being part of a university, you know, ultimately rolling up to a kind of university ownership. So those are certain things that Time Magazine didn't enjoy that. Time Magazine might have enjoyed other breaks and other advantages, but didn't have those. Look, the word Harvard means different things to different people. We always talk about the further you get away from Boston and Cambridge, the more luster the brand has. It's a great calling card. And even though we're different from Harvard Business School, we are different from Harvard University. It has been an advantage for 100 years to have that as part of our name. Yeah, it's a really interesting relationship. In terms of the split between in-house and external authors for HBR, how does that break down if you can share some details around there? Because you kind of perfected the art of getting good people to write on your behalf, which is almost the holy grail for media businesses because it doesn't scale very well in media business because you constantly have to put out new stuff and generally that means hiring more people to write stuff. So I'm fascinated by this piece of it. And actually one more part of the business model is we tend not to have writers. We have editors. So our expertise is not so much in understanding how AI works or the latest ideas of marketing, but it's really how to translate an idea, a complicated idea that's maybe written in an academic fashion into a form that is really digestible and inspirational and all that. That's where our critique is. We're not hiring reams of subject experts, which most publications tend to have more writers than editors. In terms of the breakdown, from time to time, we do a calculation of how much of our content comes from Harvard Business School. It always comes out to somewhere around 20%. And that's not a quota and that's not a goal, but it just comes out to that. Everybody seems happy with that. 
Remember, I mean, even 100 years ago, the publication was created not to be a vanity publishing arm for Harvard Business School professors, but to be the publisher of the best ideas in business. And obviously, many of them will come from Harvard Business School because there are a lot of really smart people doing a lot of smart work over there. We're meant to extend the school's mission of making things work better and advancing people's careers and all those important things. But there's no requirement, there's no pressure or anything like that to publish from HBS. It's just a lot of those ideas are the best and we do publish a lot of them. What does the process look like for an editor at HBR? Is it that you just kind of have a constant stream of people reaching out to you saying, hey, I have this idea, would you publish it on my behalf? I would love to just kind of work through that process of how it goes from inbound or if you're going out to people, specific people with an idea saying, we would like some more information on generative AI. Can you help us put something together? Which way around does it work? I think once upon a time, we edited out of the inbox. Just stuff would come in and we would try to judge the best of it and publish what we had. In the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, we've been much more deliberate and proactive in terms of, first of all, thinking of the magazine as a magazine with sections with a special feature every month that forces some thinking about selection. So we're much more proactive and much more timely. I mean, it used to be that everything in HBR was timeless, and that was sort of the goal. Let's not compete with the business weeks and the fortunes that are doing news of the moment, but let's do something else that's timeless. And that, at a certain point, especially in the digital age, it seemed like, no, you have to do both. So you mentioned generative AI. Yes. So we are trying to reach out who are the smartest people who are thinking about this and what are the topics that we think. Now, a lot of them are finding us already. They have ideas, but it is a more proactive process now. We are more thoughtful about what we think readers need right now. And, you know, that means, you know, after the murder of George Floyd, suddenly every business was trying to figure out, all right, how do I do DE&I properly? How do I do that well? We had authors reaching out. We were reaching out. It was like, this was a burning problem. Still is. But there was a moment where it was absolutely top of mind for every business in the U.S. at least. So we wanted to make sure we were over-indexing on that topic, similarly with OpenAI right now. And how collaborative is the process with the writer and your editor? Is it fully formed or is it here are the kind of the major points or this is how we want to construct it that's digestible for a reader of HBR? My favorite HBR piece to let you into a secret is Brian Arthur's piece about the new world of business that he wrote with Cormac McCarthy. The bit about that that makes it so good for me is that he had Cormac McCarthy basically rewrite it because it wasn't digestible for the layperson to read. And then after he had got his red pen out, it became this beautiful piece of prose that explained a wonderful new world of business. That's, for me, the pinnacle. But then how does it generally work on a week-to-week basis? Let's say for a long piece, especially, which... I mean, more and more, obviously, what we do is digital. We're only doing six print issues a year. But in some ways, that's still our calling card or the most premium expression of what we do. Often, the author-editor relationship is tricky, is gnarly. I mean, you could imagine that with an author and a book editor as well. There might be laughter and anger and tears. But by the end, almost every author seems grateful for the work. I mean, we edit. We still edit. We publish books as well, and we edit. And I know there are a lot of authors who either complain or are thrilled that their book editors, big New York publishers, don't edit. Things just sort of fly through. And I guess I see the advantage of that. But look, I need an editor. I think everybody needs an editor. You need somebody to call BS on the bad writing or just improve things. So that's who we want to be. And sometimes that's a fraught process, but almost always at the end of it, Authors are truly great. And I know that because they send me notes and say, all right, I work with this editor. And wow, they really, really, really help make my piece sing. And generally, as you say, the brand is a huge piece of why they might be incentivized to write for HBR. If you've got consulting business, then it gives you prestige. But then there is also an element of they do get paid for their work. And then you also have this masterful habit of making something once and selling it multiple times, either across books or in the magazine or online or through your social channels. How do you structure it in a way that you're able to take one piece of content and then repurpose into many different streams and sell it in different ways? We absolutely believe if we bring in an interesting author, an interesting idea, can we play it out across multiple platforms? So in some ways, yeah, it's a direct reuse. So an article that appears in the magazine might appear in more than one collation, the best articles of 2023, the best articles on leadership. So we do this curated books and eBooks that we'll reuse some of these things. 
But then the other thing is just, can we play these ideas out across various platforms? We've just published a book by Ginny Rometty, the former CEO of IBM. It's a great book called Good Power. And it's somewhat of a memoir, but also is really filled with ideas about building successful companies of the future. We did a podcast with her. We published an article by her. We, of course, published the book. We had her speak at a couple of events. We're just trying to think of opportunities to amplify the idea. For us, there's an efficiency. I mean, all these things, most of this is monetized and we're generating ad revenue or sales and reusing things. And we're not reusing things in a way that surprises people. I mean, what we've learned is that people like these collations. They understand. I know I got that piece in the magazine, but I really like this collection of top articles on leadership that may include some repetitions. There just seems to be an appetite for smart curation. You asked before, it's another important part of our business model. Yeah, and repetition generally is how you learn things. So I think it's a master stroke. <laughs> yeah, we're going to keep publishing this thing until it gets in your thick skull. So you really get it. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong on this, but as I see it, case studies is kind of how HBR was built. And there's a huge core of the business. How do case studies fit into what you do now? They almost seem like a separate stream, but do you still take ideas from the case studies or how does that work? The case studies are a little different. So they are produced by Harvard Business School, typically by faculty authors. And then, of course, their cases developed by other business schools as well. We don't produce them. We don't edit them. We do sell them. And just a quick thing, and probably when you talked about us before, our company is Harvard Business Publishing. So I co-run the media side, which is everything we're talking about, magazine, website, books, new platforms, TikTok. And then there's a corporate learning side training high potential people within companies. So we provide a lot of learning content. There's a higher ed division, which sells the cases, which we're talking about, and then other academic materials to professors who are putting together business courses. There are these various aspects. We're not really involved in cases. We do sometimes find ways to convert cases into sort of HBR content. It's tricky because there's always a little agotype that says it's basically the equivalent of not to be used for navigational purposes. I mean, the numbers aren't necessarily 100% accurate, or the protagonist is able to sign off on the content of a case. So they may say, yeah, don't talk about this sort of unpleasant thing. So, so it's not reliable as a wiki or a piece of journalism or something like that. On the other hand, they're fantastic because they really present a dilemma. And if we can find ways to capture that in an HBR version, we do. But it's not super often that we do that. Yeah. And they strike me as for a slightly different audience, more of an academic type than your business person. Just to add to that, since you're interested in cases, so we do make, not every case, but we do make a sizable collection of cases available to our highest tier of subscribers. And there are many subscribers that are really interested in these. We're always trying to figure out why exactly, in part because the cases require a conversation led by somebody who is directed toward trying to get to a certain type of discussion and a certain type of understanding. And Cases have these confidential teacher's notes that explain the reveal, and people can't buy those. So why do they want to buy the cases? And somebody once explained, it's almost like athletes watching game film. They're sort of seeing somebody in the middle of some challenge and how they respond. So even if it doesn't fulfill the whole case experience by buying a case, you still experience some of that. I thought that was an interesting observation. Is the magazine still the flagship of the business? When you're thinking about new ideas, do you generally think about it, and you might not think about it in these terms at all, but do you think, oh, this would be a great magazine feature, and then we could use it on the website and on social channels? Is there another dominant form of media that you think about first, and then you look at other pieces of your operation? It's evolving. I mean, a few years ago, I would have said the magazine still is that. It's sort of the coin of the realm. Authors wanted that partly because it's long form, partly because of the scarcity value. You've only got six print issues, partly because, I don't know what, maybe their mother would read it. But that's changed. And we still have long lead times for print. When I came to HBR, I had come from Time Magazine. And I remember telling the staff, trying to shrink the lead time so we could be more timely. And I said, you know, Time Magazine, we would put an entire magazine out in a week. And I realized I was not impressing anybody because they're all sort of shaking their heads and saying, yeah, it looked like that. Time was not an impressive publication to these editors. So I think it's changed. I think editors realize that digital gives them extended reach, extended breadth, interactivity. The idea that print is the prize, that's still true for many and still true at times, but that's become less true. And I mean, I do a weekly interview, The New World of Work, where I interview CEOs about whatever the challenges they're facing. And 
that's become a brand. So I'm getting inundated by companies and PR people who are like, I want my CEO to be on this. So there are multiple platforms, I think, now that seem to matter to creators. It's a really interesting question. We think about that internally as well, because these things tend to evolve organically, like you said, with your show. How do you think about the brand of HBR and then these sub-brands that seem to form a life of their own and how you manage that relationship, whether you just let them all blossom and see where you stand at the end of the day? Well, the great example of that in history is the people section of Time Magazine. This page with little gossipy items that you know, evolved into what was the most successful magazine in the Time Stable People magazine. We have a sub-brand called Ascend, which is aimed at far younger cohort than our typical cohort. So it's new entrants to the workforce, or in some cases, even far and away the largest major in the US now, undergraduate major, is business. So all these people studying business, they hopefully will become part of the HBR audience if they're not already. So we'd like to use this Ascend subbrand to connect with them as well, which means the content is very different. The content is, for that cohort, will be even basic, like how do you get a job? How do you get noticed? How do you ace an interview? And then for first-time employees, how do I deal with a toxic colleague? How do I deal with the fact that I'm in the wrong job? Just this sort of more practical early career stuff. So that's something that evolved out of HBR. I mean, we did some of that content, but then we just decided this is sort of different from what we do. And we really want to target this audience and see if it likes us and if we can connect with them. So I mentioned TikTok before. I mean, our TikTok presence is Ascend. It's our Ascend brand. It's very TikTok-y. It's not HBR only short and video. It really is a different language and a younger language and hopefully an effective language. So maybe the answer to that is, we are creating things, experimenting with things, developing them on their own to see if they can stand on their own. It's really interesting. This is a very specific question, but I was looking at the layout of your website this morning and I noticed the Ascend brand is there in the nav bar front and center. But there's also the first thing in the nav bar is diversity, which I thought was just a really interesting decision from your perspective of pulling that out because you have a list of topics as well, which diversity may be within topics, but you've split it out. Is that a branding decision or can you kind of explain how you think about that generally? I think this order of prioritization is interesting to see from the outside. It changes. I mean, it certainly changes from time to time. As I mentioned before, a topic that has always been important has always been something we covered. But I think after the murder of George Floyd, employees, let's say, were tired of companies saying, yes, we're doing our best, but it's so hard. And that was no longer acceptable. We're sort of in an era where, no, it is imperative to get better in the diversity area because your customers demand that, your employees demand that, and frankly, you should demand it, and society demands that. So I think it just had become such an interesting challenge for companies. How do I significantly get better? So we just put it on the nav bar because we're creating a decent amount of content on it and knew that it was front and center. If somehow we solve the diversity problem in the world and people aren't as hungry for that, then we might drop that and put world peace in the nav bar. In many ways, you on HBR sort of pioneered the subscription model. Is that everyone was thinking about how do we move from print into the digital realm? There was ads, obviously made a huge impact here, but you can correct my numbers if they're wrong. But as I understand it, particularly a long time ago, subscription was a much bigger part of your business than advertising. Is that still true? It is still true. And I'm not being quiet. I don't remember the breakdown percentage, but sure, subscription is a bigger business than advertising business, but advertising is a big business as well. It used to be all print advertising. Now we only have six issues a year, so print advertising is limited, but we're doing digital advertising. We do sponsored content. We do a lot of other digital ad offerings. Do you think that can hold into the future, or do you see that balance changing? So we want to be a subscription business. If people renew and then renew a second time, they're really saying, we like you. And that is something close to a lifelong customer. I mean, you can't count on it. You have to keep delivering quality and making a difference in people's lives. But People will renew. And if you get that recurring revenue, and by the way, they pay in advance, there's a lot that is nice about a subscription model. So that is what we're geared toward. We want people to subscribe, even though we get more money per issue if they do a one-off, but we're geared towards subscription. I mean, when I was at Time, it was a different business. We had massive numbers. We had 4 million subscribers at one point. So imagine the advertising possibilities with 4 million engaged subscribers. I mean, the problem is, you're losing so many every year. There's such a churn that it's very costly to replace them. But it's worth it if you have the advertising 
problem is if the advertising goes away, your business model is really strained. And that at time that happened, we would create all these features that were ad supported. So there'd be the column on tech and the column on wine, and they would have these adjacent ads right next to it. And we would try journalistically to make them as good as we could, but still sort of weird. I mean, we were essentially producing content for an advertiser, which again is maybe fine when the advertising's there, but then when it inevitably disappears, you have this product that maybe people don't really love because you haven't geared it toward your readers, but you've geared it toward your sponsors. And one of the things we're adding is learning content and learning pathways for readers who want more than just the latest, but are willing to let us help guide them on a path where they can learn skills. We can sort of badge them along the way. I mean, that's kind of the next innovation. If that works, then that is part of a subscription tier or a membership tier, whatever you call it. So yes, we're very much still geared toward a subscription membership business. And would that sit outside of the courses? Would they be very distinct? So this would be under HBR rather than the courses aspect of HBP that you mentioned earlier? We bring them in through HBR, but we're essentially taking them to the learning space. You can imagine the ideal version of that where people are willingly giving us LinkedIn quality information about who they are and who they were, what they've done, their sort of resume, but then more forward-looking information, who they want to be and where they would like to be in the C-suite or head of marketing, whatever it is, and that we can put them on a path to get there and size up what they need to get there. So it kind of touches, I guess, both. But essentially, it's a ramp into our learning business to answer your question. And you, last I checked, have got something like 12 million unique monthly visitors to your site, which is pretty impressive. But your content is generally quite broad, focused mostly on topics that are broadly applicable to managers in most businesses. Have you considered going more industry-specific in certain realms and testing that out? We've thought about that a lot, whether it's industry-specific, whether we create content for CFOs, and by the way, try to connect them in some sort of community play. We're not doing that now. Maybe it's something we do in the future. We've had foreign partners that have done that in Scandinavian countries and things like that, where it's smaller work, but it's sort of been inspiring. So we're looking at some of that. I mean, if you look at every media company as suddenly a learning company, everybody has sort of realized that their most devoted readers, especially for long-form content, are lifelong learners, that they have this appetite, hopefully insatiable appetite, to learn more and go deeper. So we're all trying to tap that, whether it's through a kind of masterclass approach or proper learning pathways that I'm talking about. I think we're more focused there than some of these other areas, but you raise a good point. Those are out there to be experimented with as well. I think that's the fascinating thing about business. There are just so many things that you could do. It's about finding the trade-offs between them and which one to prioritize and then see how it goes. When you arrived in time in, I think it was the wake of the financial crisis or even in the eye of the storm, one of the things that you've referenced already, you've made the content much more timely. It was built on kind of timeless academic-based research now with the demands of the internet and people wanting news right now. You've made a big change. It's not news necessarily on there, but it's much more newsy and timely than it was. How did you go about implementing that transition? And how do you think about the balance between those two things now in terms of evergreen content and more timely stuff? I mean, we did it just by doing it. And the sky didn't fall in. I mean, there were people, there were editors who had been here for a long time and just thought, we don't do that. One of my predecessors had said, HBR will never blog. It will be blogged about, it will never blog. That's a kind of pre-digital notion. But this guy was an idiot. It was just, that wasn't who we were. And HBR had done well and it didn't do that. So I don't know. I just think expectations changed. People were fully digital. When I came in, it was in the recession. People were starved for timely information, even if it was drawing from our archive about how do you survive downturns pulling from 1929 or something. It's a good one to go back to, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. One of my favorites. So partly it was just the evolution of digital and the evolution of reader habits that made it kind of a no-brainer. I don't want to be completely timely. I mean, I think that would be a mistake. If we were flooding the zone today with stuff about TikTok and US-China, I mean, I want to do some stuff on the dilemma of TikTok, and I want to do stuff on the US-China relationship, and are they on parallel track? I mean, that's all fascinating, but I don't want to do that the way the Wall Street Journal would do that. We're nobody's first read, so if we weigh in on a topic, it's got to be something people don't already know, which means we might be a day or two or three later, but with a thoughtful piece that hopefully stands out. But the ultimate value is the long tail for us. When people search anything, what does good leadership look like nowadays? Or how do I 
effectively build a board or what are ways to get the most out of a place. I want an evergreen HBR article to be the most sourced, most appreciated thing. So we're really trying to do both. And ultimately, it's probably the timeless pieces that are of most value. We, like other media companies, we bring those things out and push them on social media sometimes. An article that may be 5, 10, 15 years old that still has value, we'll push it out on social and not pretend that it's new, but say, look, this is from our archive. And these things tend to drive a lot of interest and traffic. What you said there is you were not anyone's first read. You said that before. And when I heard it, my ears pricked up. It's such an interesting thing to say because so many media businesses fight to be the first thing that someone reads. And obviously, you end up in a very similar content stream and everyone looks the same, kind of clickbaity. But your point of we're probably someone's second, third, maybe fourth read, but when they really have a problem, we'll be there. I think that's such a fascinating strategy to have. I mean, the Wall Street Journal decided it wanted to be the New York Times. I've never understood that because it doesn't have the resources or doesn't attract the quality. So it then becomes an inferior version of the New York Times instead of an outstanding version of itself, which is what the paper used to be and still could be. Yeah, you have to find what you are good at. As you said, if you can be in a place where you don't have any competition, I think that's not a bad place to be. We've talked about this a little bit. Social media, you've been incredibly successful at building social media accounts. We've mentioned TikTok, but LinkedIn, Twitter, you have incredibly strong followings on both of those platforms. What have you learned in this area? Do the teams need to be separate? So your people who are looking after the magazine and blog, are they separate to your social teams? Do they collaborate a lot? How do you successfully build large audiences across these different platforms? I think there's probably more collaboration between the business and editorial side on social media strategy than any other place. There's no crossing of church state. It's just there's a limited number of things you can push out. Same thing is true with newsletters. In newsletters, in email pushes, and in social. So that I think commercial and edit sites need to really think, we only have a few swipes, and how do we create the most value and balance sort of editorial versus commercial needs? We have 14 million LinkedIn followers, which is an enormous number. I think it would be higher. They kind of capped us at one point. The algorithm. We've talked about the algorithm too much. <laughs> no, it was so clear that they capped us because nobody could join. So I don't know why they capped us, but they did it for a while. But 14 million is a great number. So the question is, what do you do with that? And it's not the easiest thing in the world to monetize that. I mentioned that I do a regular show. It broadcasts initially on LinkedIn Live. When you have 14 million followers and you say, hey, we're going live with an interview with the CEO of Microsoft, we will get an audience. We will get a sizable audience and they'll tune in live or they will tune in later. And then we put it up on YouTube and elsewhere. So there is a great convening power with that. In many ways, though, it's still sort of top of funnel stuff that we are getting our brand out there and hoping to bring them to our site and our platforms to subscribe or to buy a book or whatever it is. Do you have an effective way of measuring that return on spend for the social media teams? Because that for us is just very difficult to tell. You can build a sizable audience on TikTok, for example, but then how do you necessarily know that your next podcast listener or your next subscriber has come from those channels? We try. We have far better data capabilities than we had in the past. So we can look at those touches and we don't know everything, but we can figure out what eventually leads to something. There are patterns that emerge. So yeah, we're trying. We're getting better with data for sure. What is it like to work for an entity like Harvard versus a more traditional private sector business? You worked for a number of them before. What does it enable you to do that you might not be able to otherwise? And I guess there's also a flip side to that question, but I'd rather stay on the positive dimension. It's an unusual relationship. It's a unique, sui generis relationship. So we were set up about 30 years ago, Harvard Business Publishing, as an independent entity. So the idea was we had grown and we were a proper business and needed to pay people competitive salaries and needed to pay royalties even back to Harvard Business School, which was easier to do if we were a separate entity. So we really are an independent entity, but we have a single shareholder, and that is the dean of the business school. We have a board, and that more than half of the board members are administrators from Harvard Business School. So we try to take advantage of the relationship that we're lockstep in terms of mission. And look, both of our missions is to improve the practice of management, to create more effective leadership, to make things run better. That's kind of the mission that we both have. We're significantly profitable. You got into some of that in your earlier podcast. And the surplus that we have, we give back to the school, and that funds their research on case studies and other things. Look, I'm a journalist. 
we crave our independence. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. We don't want our publisher telling us what to do. That's who we are. That's the way we operate. But you have to earn that independence. And you earn that independence, one, by being successful and making your targets and giving the school the surplus that it expects that we can drive. But also, it's not doing stuff that's idiotic. So yeah, we constantly want to innovate and we're on TikTok, whatever. But to do something that would be so off-brand, that would put the Harvard brand at risk, you have to think about that. Harvard is sensitive about its brand. People love nothing in the world than to try to make fun of Harvard or point out some feckless move that somebody at Harvard has done. So you have to think about that. It would be reckless not to think about that. So in some ways, I'm balancing trying to be innovative, trying to be independent with knowing that you don't want to blow the franchise there. You don't want to royal things to the point where someone at Harvard University says, you know what, we need an editorial oversight board because they're really off the reservation there. So those are the things that I think about. Yeah, it's particularly poignant when you have one shareholder as well. Yes, who, by the way, is the greatest person in the world. I just want to say that (laughs) for the record. (laughs) Yeah, we'll leave that bit in. Um, I also wanted to talk to you about branding because, you know, HBR, Harvard itself, obviously, have got big brands and that time as well has got a very distinctive brand too. One of the things that we talked about with Matt in the podcast about your brand, generally they're cultivated over many years and you know, you've been around for hundreds, so you've clearly ticked that box. What have you learned just throughout your career and HBR particularly about brands and how you cultivate a brand and what it allows you to do as a business? You know, at Time Magazine, the red border around Time has famously been referred to as the most valuable thing that Time has. And things have evolved. I don't know if that's still true, but that was a truism, at least when I was there. And I think somebody actually put a value on it. It was probably in the billions of dollars. I can't remember. When I came in, we had a consultant that said our version of that was the table of contents on the cover of Harvard Business Review. It was hard to act against that when somebody had declared that and written that up, but it just didn't feel right. It just didn't feel right for a sort of digital era and of everything I learned about magazine making that a table of contents on the cover allowed people, yes, to find the article they want, but also allowed them to look and say, nope, nothing there for me. And they don't even take the magazine out of the little plastic bag. So the lesson is that maybe our definition of what is essential in a brand does evolve or needs testing. To be a publication that's 100 years old, that could cut both ways. There are plenty of people who think Harvard Business Review is boring and daunting and not for them. And the 100 years association or maybe the Harvard Association is not a plus. I guess my answer is build on the amazing legacy that you have, but pay attention to what people need and do it in a way that's evolutionary. I guess brands as well, they have to stand for something. Otherwise, you're not a brand. If you try and please all people, then you don't stand for anything. We experimented at one point with almost clickbaity headlines and articles online. It wasn't intentional exactly, but we were sort of in that direction and then caught ourselves and said, stop. It was interesting to see that when we did that, everything improved, including traffic. We're not BuzzFeed. We're never going to be that. That's not what people want out of us. So we need to be ourselves. Who are we? I mean, we need people to trust that what we do is not just sort of off the top of our head, that is based on research, probably original research, but solid research, or based on tested best practice. That's the relationship. That's who we are. And we can have fun or we can be sober, but at the bottom of the day, it's like this is practical takeaway knowledge that you can apply in your career, in your company, and you can trust. Makes sense. If it makes you feel better as well, my previous business, we had some consultants come in and they told us that the jewel in our crown in terms of a brand was this one piece of the business, which ended up three years later imploding most of the business. So oops, maybe don't always trust them. (laughs) I wanted to wind down the conversation talking a little bit about HBR at 100, which is the book that you put out last year, I think, celebrating... 100 years of HBR with the most innovative and influential articles you've published. You haven't paid me to do this, but I'm really interested in the exercise from a couple of different angles. One is, do you think the way in which content these days is distributed online and you know the proliferation generally of content means that we'll have fewer classics? You know, In the business world, we often talk about Clay Christensen, Brian Arthur that I mentioned earlier, Michael Porter, these names that have published their work 30, 40, 50 years ago in some cases, we still talk about them, but some of the more current stuff in some ways, gets washed out in the sea of things that's out there. Is it still possible to create classics today? And what form do they generally take? So I don't know. I don't have a pithy answer for that. It's an observation I've made. And I think even Harvard Business School, there were giants of a certain era. And maybe you always do that as an institution. You know, you recognize the giants. You say, well, who are the giants now? And you don't see it because it's too immediate. But I think you're onto something. 
And maybe it is the proliferation of platforms and sources of content. It would be wrong to say every big thought has been thought. That cannot be true. Look, Harvard Business School was created 100 years ago because the dean of Harvard Business School who created it said, we need a theory of business. There is going to be chaos if we don't come up with a theory of business. And this publication is meant to provide that so that business isn't haphazard. I think he said in an article in our first issue, haphazard and a pathetic gamble is what he said. But maybe we're in a moment where we had a great run, 100 years, and it was kind of industrial, post-industrial period, and there was a certain era. And maybe now something else is happening, and it has to do with hybrid, and it has to do with AI everywhere, and empathetic leadership, and just sort of the things that are important now that weren't so important then. So maybe it's a moment for people to come up with the new paradigms. I'm looking for the great piece that will replace. We did great pieces on shareholder value, shareholder primacy, the ideas that ruled the waves for 50 years. We're in a new era now and looking for the ideological underpinning of that. So that's another great piece that needs to be written. Well, it sort of feels like people are going back to those old pieces about shareholder value and remembering that it's to do with profits and various other traditional old stuffy concepts that got lost for a little while. And I guess going from that concept as well of going through those most influential articles that you publish, what, as you went through them, struck you as whether there were consistent threads that make enduring great business writing? Let's assume that the ideas they had were all innovative and interesting, but from the presentation, the communication side of things, was there anything there that were commonalities that they shared? I hadn't really thought about that. I mean, we were trying to do a mixture. I mean, it may be that there are more commonalities if we'd just done pieces on strategy and it was more of an oleo of ideas and pieces. If you take something like Michael Porter's Five Forces, I mean, that was such an original concept. And there are people who will say, well, you missed a sixth force. These things are either enduring or in some cases, we've published newer pieces that either just feel right for the moment or that we hope will be enduring. There's sort of a guesswork there. But the enduring value of Ted Levitt, Marketing Myopia, thinking about the difference between marketing and sales and branding, just understanding those differences. And Porter, who really gave a framework for thinking about strategy and therefore about change and therefore about preservation. If you've created a useful framework or a useful tool, that is gold. I think that makes sense. Maybe you can't come up with a classic now because it needs time to be proven right. There might have been particularly interesting articles back in the day, which ultimately weren't proven right by the market or by businesses generally. So maybe that's one piece of it too. Well, Adi, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time and sharing what is a very interesting and unique business that's been around for a long time and I'm sure will be around for many, many more years. So thank you so much for joining us. Well done. Thanks for your interest. I appreciate that. Here we go. The boss is back in the building. Roast me. How did I do? We will leave that till the end of the conversation. I want to give Addy and HBR its proper respect and pay some homage to the conversation first. So we'll leave all the grading, which I do have my detailed notes here. Perfect. Just build up tension. Before you give him credit, I'm going to give him tons of credit. It was a really enjoyable conversation. I came out of it, I think, with more energy, which doesn't normally happen. He was just very fun, very open. I mentioned this to you just before this conversation. We had two episodes this week, David Einhorn and Addy here. And both of them, I had expectations going in and the conversations could not have been more different from what I expected to hear. So maybe it's an old story of don't judge a book by its cover. But I was incredibly surprised to hear how much they experiment, how much they have changed their ways, changed their model over 100 plus years. I think... When you think of a lot of these brands that have been around for so long, so many of them stick to what they do well, stick to their niche. If it's luxury, they do luxury. You have some pivots like we did the DuPont business breakdown. That business looks completely different. And that was one of the things that immediately stuck out to me. And I will just say right up front, if I talk about media brands that I admire, HBR is pretty damn high on that list. And it is because of a very specific reason. They are there to teach and lead executives And the whole idea is how to create better businesses, and they are a better business. Like I can't think of too many companies that that is their mission, and they're actually a good business. We have so many examples of these companies that set out with that as their mission, and then they don't stay in business. There's so many lessons, I think, to take away here. And Addy was just very open, honest, and genuine about pretty much everything there. 
Yeah, I would completely echo that. It's one of the more elegant media businesses I've ever come across in terms of the model behind it and how they can scale it and use their brand to their advantage. I don't think many other media businesses do that in the way that they don't need to generate the content. They can edit the content. They have a steady stream of people that want to work with them and they don't even need to pay them in many cases, which is just incredible. As you say, his point, to survive for a century, you have to stay true to what you are and your mission, but you need to adapt. From when he came in in the late 2000s to now, the business looks very different. The type of content they produce is very different. And he doesn't shy away from that. Yeah. HBR will never blog. And then they did. They used clickbait for a little while. One of the interesting things that they do, which I think is important and where we've probably flubbed ourselves before, is they dedicate resources specifically to the medium that they're creating for. So when you mentioned like whatever they have for TikTok is specifically for TikTok, I think that is a key lesson. You can't try to use your exact format and just publish it in a separate place and have it look the same and just take the shortcut. You need people that are pretty much dedicated to those channels and know how they work. So some might say LinkedIn is a little bit different than Twitter. Some might say that. TikTok is a little different than Instagram. And all of these channels have separate things which make them tick. And I think if you try to pull over the same lessons from one to the next, you can just end up wasting time, wasting resources. So that was something that immediately stuck with me. I did think on your branding point, that was definitely one of the things that we emphasized in our business breakdown, which it was great to hear that he listened to the business breakdown. I was surprised to hear that he did not at least articulate it in such a strong way where maybe we really emphasized how important that was. And he emphasized how important it was, but maybe not as consciously, if that makes sense. In terms of how important the Harvard brand is to their business. Yeah. It wasn't that he downplayed it, but it was definitely not the leading part of the conversation. It was almost like a feature, not the product itself. And it seemed like he thinks about it from the other perspective, which maybe makes sense. Like he thinks about what do I need to do to protect that brand, not necessarily enhance it. What issues might I fall into because someone else is going to call me up and say, hey, that's not what we do, or that's not what I want our brand associated with in terms of the content that's on your homepage. And maybe that's because it's kind of an embarrassment of riches. The brand itself lends a ton of credibility to HBR. And so it's not improving the brand. It's more just making sure you don't do wrong. And that seems the way he thinks about it a little bit, I'm sure, if we asked him more bluntly. How much importance do you place on the brand in this business? I'm sure he would tell us that. Yeah, it does a decent lift. Yeah. And having his experience previously, I think coming from the print world and the pure private business world, HBR is definitely a private entity, but different affiliations. I think that plays a role and you can feel the tension that exists in that system. And then just to hear some of the changes like the branding stuff, because so much of that is art. I didn't know the whole Time Magazine red border makes a ton of sense, yeah, yeah. how valuable that is. And it's hilarious that he brought up the table of contents thing because I was planning to use an old picture of the Harvard Business Review. And a lot of them, I was like, they all have these tables of contents, which are kind of cool, but kind of annoying. And I just want like a classic snapshot of a cover. And then I was like, oh, that is the reason why it's not there. I love how they got consultants in. The consultants said, this is the thing that really does it for you. And then they're like, no, I don't think that's true. I don't want to go that direction. Yeah. I liked the shade that he threw at the Wall Street Journal. Yes. When he said it, I was kind of surprised. I was like, wow, is your old employer there? Yeah. Respect. Other notes, masterclass. It has become a verb. I still don't know how the company's financials will actually make sense, but is it worth something that they've basically become synonymous with a certain style of content creation? I would like to talk to them on this podcast. They kind of have faded into the background a little bit. There was a real push during COVID in particular where Masterclass was everywhere. And I don't see it so much anymore. Maybe they're not burning as many ad dollars as they were at one point. There was a point where it was everything you read was about Masterclass and less so now. Incorrect. The fact that I just said Masterclass to you will mean that it will show up on every single one of your social media platforms on a reoccurring basis. So I'm just telling you that that is about to change very quickly. I brought it up a few weeks ago, and I have not stopped seeing Masterclass advertisements. People say, no, they're not listening to you. I have very good reason to believe that they are. They are just the absolute master at monetizing their back book. It's something that I would love to employ in our business. We talk about this probably three or four times a week about how do we leverage the content that has been recorded in the past. If you go onto joincloss.com and search any of the transcripts there, there will be one or two ideas that are pertinent to you today, right now. But surfacing them 
selling them in a different way is extremely difficult. They do an incredible job of that across books, magazines, blogs, podcasts, you name it, they do it. And if we can employ 15% of that efficiency, we'd be in a decent spot to start with. Well, I love that you guys workshopped the exact reason why. It's not that you're getting recycled content. This is smart curation. And the way that you learn is through repetition. So we are going to package this. Honestly, I think that's all true. Like It's not just some BS fluff sales statement. It makes a ton of sense. You guys had a nice chemistry of workshopping a few different things there. When he said about his LinkedIn followers, I just couldn't stop myself from jumping in there because I was like, you've got 14 million. Yeah, of course you're being stunted. Us, we're working hard to get to 3,000 at the moment. I have zero sympathy when you're at 14 million. No, that was hilarious though. I mean, it must be capped. I'll throw him a follow-up just to get him above that threshold there. Another anecdote, case studies as a form of game film. Absolutely love it. Another great example of going to Tyler Callen's how do you practice something. Case studies are a pretty damn good example of game film. Now, you can't put yourself in this psychological and mental, emotional state that people were in at the time that those cases were going on. But there are way worse ways to spend some time researching different topics than than going through Harvard's case study database. And I think there's so many good ones from like 80s and 90s. And you might have different takeaways now than you did then. But I just think there are so many unique corporate outcomes. And we spent most of our time focusing on the past 10 years or 20 years, maybe. But great example of this, we have this Chanos interview, which we'll have played yesterday once this is released. And to me, it's like, go read the Energy MLP case study from 2015, and then go listen to this short thesis. There's so many of the same dynamics in terms of growth capbacks or maintenance capbacks and how that's presented and it's accounting gimmickry. And if you want to look at how things are done, it's like Financial Shenanigans is a great book and it references all these different ways case studies that you can use to apply to businesses when you look at them to look at where management teams may be hiding things. And it's like, it is very hard to, to think about how do you practice being an investor? How do you practice being whatever? That's a great way. I love that little anecdote. Yeah, it's clever. And the number of case studies, they saw, I mean, saw like 15 million case studies last year, didn't they? So there's clearly a few different factors at play. And that's probably the best one. It sounded like when he learned that fact as well, he's like, oh, that is re- really interesting. Yeah. And another good workshopping of the value of these things. Why haven't there been classics created? Classics need time to be proven through cycles. I thought Ali was excellent. I thought his answer there was weak. Oh, interesting. Clearly, he didn't give it much thought. And so I thought, I'm going to jump in here because I'm thinking about something as you're talking. I want to say weak. That's probably a bit harsh. There could have been a really interesting answer there. Think of all the number of business write-ups he's read in his life. Like what makes a really good business essay? I'm sure if I could give him more time to think about it, he'd come up with an excellent answer. I think time is a key ingredient. I'm not going to lie to you. Yeah, it seems like it. We have many great episodes which get the time of day, but I'm telling you in 10, 15, 20 years, they will be considered classics. I actually revisited Marketing Myopia, and there's been several updates to that. Very interesting read. Highly recommend tapping into that. And there's many others that fall into that category. You talked about some of the great essays in our 12 Most Influential Essay episode too. This is really funny. I'll take you behind the curtain because as <laughs> I was asking this question and I wanted to tell him about my favorite HBR essay and I could see him getting excited. And then I completely forgot the guy's name. And so then I was just like, <laughs> I've completely forgotten his name. Let me think about it. And then it came to me in a moment of inspiration. But then obviously in the editing of the podcast, I just completely chopped that out. It sounded like a genius. There were no problems in that question. I wasn't aware of that. But before we transition into the grading of the interview (laughs) aspects, any final thoughts? The final thought for me is, it's really cool that he listened to our business breakdown. I didn't expect it. At the beginning, I started the spiel of, this is who we are. This is what we're trying to do. This is why I think it'd be interesting to talk to you. And he was like, no, 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 I know. I listened to your podcast about us. And I was like, oh, no. (laughs) Because I actually, I was pretty impressed. However, I take issue with the fact that you said no one would go on the record to talk about our business. And given that I was looking at him as he was telling me this, I thought that you've got a point because you're here. And so I didn't know what to say other than, yeah, I'll blame Matt for that because I didn't say it. He said it. And he said, well, seems like a sensible thing to do. So that was on your shoulders. Yeah. I mean, he used a phrase within the podcast, like, I have to be delicate here, which suggests that some of the things that can be said or cannot be said might be limited. So 
I feel like we paired a very nice business breakdown with a very nice making media. We gave an overall picture of the business and we tapped into a lot of things. But in terms of who we can learn from, there are so many obvious media companies that get highlighted over and over and over again. And I tend to be, this is just like a personality thing, attracted to those that are a little bit less obvious, a little bit more under the radar. And it's hilarious to think that they might be under the radar when you see them pretty much in any bookstore, airport, anywhere that you can possibly go. But I do think as a business, strictly from a business sense, they're under the radar and underappreciated. So let's just say I plan to continue to study them and hopefully stay in touch with Addy because that was a useful conversation. He was probably more open than I was expecting him to be. You might think that he held a few things back, which is probably true and his is right. But I would happily talk to him again and would quite like to as well. It's just a lesson as well. Like if you really want to go and talk to someone, if you can prove a body of work in public and say, hey, we did this about your business or about you, would you talk to me about whatever this thing is? If your thing that you actually want them to do is small and maybe has no public presence, but you can show that you understand what they are or what they do, it puts you in a really good footing to go and have that conversation. Absolutely. So on to grading. Here we go. Yeah, let me pull out my scroll of Good. notes here. No, honestly, I thought it was a great conversation. There weren't too many things that I thought I would have asked it this way, or I thought you missed a question there. You guys had very good chemistry, which allowed you to ask some of the harder questions. The question on compensation, I forget the terminology he used, which was not pay. It was not compensation. It was something else. Um, which masked the idea of paying those that contribute. And here's what I'll say. I think he's 100% accurate. The platform and being featured is more in terms of compensation than probably what they would get in terms of dollars. But I thought that was an important question to ask. And it was good of him to acknowledge that that's somewhat of a business advantage. I thought his answer in terms of tax status, how that's an advantage for certain portions of their business not the advertising business, not the international business, but other portions of their business, was also an interesting insight. It's an interesting takeaway. And those things actually matter a shit ton. For anybody who's like, oh, how much does that matter? And you guys think the accounting stuff is overrated. It's not overrated. Do you know how much that compounds? Everybody talks about compounding. It compounds a shit ton over time when you can basically accrue that cash when others would be paying it out. And that's just a benefit of the model there. So those were were good questions. I thought talking a little bit about AI and tapping into that, how they're handling it, getting a little bit in terms of his process and how he goes about working with some of the journalists and editors. I thought that was a really interesting thing that they don't consider themselves as employing journalists, they're editors. All these were really interesting topics. So right off the top, I will give you credit for navigating the conversation. That's generous. Out of 10, no sevens, where, where do we land? I will give you... Uh, 9.1. Wow. I'll take it. I'll say that and run away. That's probably a bit higher than I'd say. I think we had good chemistry. I'm not good at asking questions. And what I realized after was I speak too quickly. I need to slow down mentally. And the editing helps me a bit. So when I listened to the raw conversation, it felt a bit clumsier than it might sound now. And there was one question after I was irritated at myself for missing, which is just, if you don't have a brand like Harvard or HBR, is there a way to build the same business model? that they've got. Is there? Because it's so much of it seems to be brand related, you know, the fact that they either don't need to pay people to contribute or they pay certain stars to contribute. Is that possible unless you have a brand like theirs? Well, it's interesting because I didn't think that was necessarily a question you missed because he gave the anecdote about Time magazine celebrating their yeah. 100th year. Now, Time is in a much different financial situation right now, I think, than Harvard Business Review is. So yes, there are differences. But I think he was pointing to the value of an independent brand and the longevity of that independent brand and how that exists in plain sight. I thought maybe if you're talking about starting something from scratch today and how do you create that longevity, that was a potential question that I would have added in there. But I only deducted 9.9 .9 points, I think, not a full 15 points, because I think he did answer some of that with the Time Magazine answer. What math system is that? You gave me a 9.1. Okay, so I deducted 0 0.9 points. Sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I thought we were going on a 100 scale. I apologize. 9.1 out of 100. That makes a difference. <laughs> no, no. 9.1 out of 10. 9.1 out of 10. But the other thing I would give you credit for, and this is an opinion I have, the whole thing about hosts getting out of the way. Yes, 
Host should get out of the way unless they have something important to add. But giving context around things or giving a good solution to something, putting something in different terms, that is insanely valuable. Like just asking questions, that's like replacement level hosting. If you want to add value over that replacement level, you fill in blanks, you provide a different angle, you add context. And that's where I thought the reason why we don't have more classics is because classics need to be proven out over time. I think that's a really good insight. That's something where I'm going to totally borrow that. I hope a lot of people (laughs) listen to this episode, but I hope the people that listen to this episode aren't the ones that listen to whatever episode I show up on where I use that (laughs) and act like it's my own. That, That to me is a particularly good insight. And there were a few other times where you did that. So I give you credit. That's kind. The thing we talk about this a lot with hosting is you need to say enough. You need to say enough to bring the listener with you. And if you generally have something insightful to say, then you should say it. If you're just repeating what the person's just said, don't say that. But if you're adding the conversation or moving it on or reframing it in a different way or simplifying something, then please, by all means, do that. And if it turns out afterwards that you don't want to keep it, then you don't have to. But you should try to add to the conversation. I agree. If you're just going to repeat what the person just said and give the same exact insights that they just did, it's not worth doing that. Anything else as a takeaway? No, I enjoyed it. I learned a lot. I will be revisiting those ideas many times in the future. Yes. Any idea of when he listened to the business breakdown? No. I mean, the fact that he had recall of specific points made me think that it was quite recent. But no, I'm not sure. I'm always interested to know whether these things happen before we reach out, after we reach out. Well, his team, they were very quick to respond to my request, which made me think that they had some knowledge of what we're doing. I'm deducting the score to an 8.5. This would have been very valuable information to know uh, <laughs> yeah. beforehand. So, <laughs> Major missed question. <laughs> adjust the score. Yeah. Gonna update the sheet. Awesome. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed that. It was great to be a listener here. I will certainly give you the proper credit. And we have a fun mix. I mean, to go from Addy to some of our next guests will be a nice mix and change of pace. I loved it, though. Having somebody with very core traditional media experience was a fun one. And I hope that we have him on again, honestly, because I learned a lot from him. And I think in a year from now, some of those topics like AI will be pretty valuable to revisit. Me too. And I enjoyed his humor. At the end of the conversation, he said, no, you can't use any of that, (laughs) which made my heart sing for a second. But then he gave me a wry smile. So yeah, enjoyed it. Hope other people did too. We'll see you soon. Amen. All right. Thank you for listening. As always, we will catch you next week on Making Media.